I'm curious, why should people care about esports? If you think video games can add value to someone's time or life, then you should pay attention to esports because it's the same as the NFL. It's the same as Major League Baseball. It's the same as Major League Soccer. It's the best players in a competitive environment playing against each other to find an outcome. Hi, I'm Cody Goff from Curiosity.com. Today we're going to learn about professional and collegiate esports. Every week we explore what we don't know because curiosity makes us smarter. This is the Curiosity Podcast. By now, everyone's heard about the rise of esports, with video game tournaments attracting millions of spectators worldwide. But beyond the viewers and dollars involved, what about the skills involved? What's the difference between a professional football player and a professional League of Legends player? The differences may surprise you, at least according to Kurt Melcher. He's the executive director of eSports at Robert Morris University, and he's not just an eSports advocate. He also has more than 20 years of experience playing and coaching soccer, one of those traditional sports that you may have heard of. I guess it's pretty popular in certain parts of the world. Whether you care about video games or not, You'll want to hear Kurt's unique point of view on what it takes to succeed in esports, why they're so popular, and why you might want to start paying attention. The executive director of esports at Robert Morris University. And I said esports, not sports. Tell me what that means. Esports are electronic sports, really. It's uh, video games that are played competitively. Okay, that sounds simple enough. It really is simple. What it, You can do anything competitively, though, right? How is this different than me just playing in a room with my friends? Um, generally, it's organized, I'd say, in a, in a team fashion. Um, it has a, a large... Because there's a difference between video games and esports, right? And, and the thing that, in my mind at least, and I'm sure some people may have different definitions, but the thing that differentiates it to me is the community underneath it or behind the game that sort of elevates it to an esports status because you know i think a lot of developers now are putting out games that are saying this is the next esport well you could say that as much as you want but the community really defines what is an esport by elevating it sort of on a pedestal because there's such a mass uh you know interest in it that creates that sort of elite esport competition which you know, like League of Legends, Dota 2, uh, Counter-Strike. Uh, those are kind of like the elite in, in my mind. And there's a couple others too, but those, those are sort of the top three. Let's just set the stage if people are not familiar with esports at all. You mentioned three games, League of Legends, Dota 2, and Overwatch? And, well, Counter-Strike. Counter-Strike. And, and Overwatch should be probably put in that mix. Okay. So if, if someone asks me, what is soccer? And I had a one-sentence answer. It would be people kick a ball and try to get it into the other person's net. Basketball, people bounce a ball and try to throw it in the other player's hoop. How would you distill, let's go down the, the top ones, League of Legends, Dota 2, and Counter-Strike? So League of Legends and Dota 2 are similar in the fact that they're defined as a game type called a MOBA, which is a um, multiplayer online uh, battle arena. So it's five players on the same team are playing against five players, and you're trying to destroy the other team's home base, more or less. So it's almost like, in a way, capture the flag. You play on a, on a map that's a mirror image, so you know both sides look the same. Uh, a couple different lanes and a couple different map objectives through the way. So you're trying to kill the other champions, the other five players you're playing against, and and there's a fog of war environment, and you have to 
really communicate well with your team to have certain synergies. There's over a hundred different champions you can you can pick from, and that's a really important part of your team chemistry between the five players that you pick. So there's a process that goes through for your team selection. So we choose a player, then they counterpick, and then we choose a player. So it's really detailed and it's really nuanced. And it's not just really like the video games that you may be thinking about, Super Mario Brothers. It's, there's a real deep strategy and a real deep team-based component and, and tactics that are involved to, to have success in this game. And this is one of the most popular games, if not the most played game in the world. So I, I don't want to get too into the minutiae since many people right. listening may have heard, played this game. But what you're essentially saying is, I'm a player, I've got a pick of up to 100 different characters or champions that I choose, and then the other team can see who that is, then they choose, and that goes back and forth like that. So there's a whole draft process where you're drafting a team at the start of a match, trying to balance and use different formulas, like a very complicated game of rock, paper, scissors, and then you have the five-on-five match during which you can kill each other and all that, but the ultimate goal is to destroy this base. Correct, correct. You summed it up perfectly. (laughs) Wonderful. Okay, just want to make sure that we've got the stage yet. And also, by the way, for some background on Dota's name. There was a game called Defense of the Ancients, and right. then the sequel they just called Dota 2. Right, Defense of the Ancients 2. Correct. But it's not actually called... I thought the official name was just Dota 2. I, boy, I don't... I, I, everything, everyone calls it Dota 2. So, I mean, I think we all know the origins as Defense of the Ancients. Whether that got left officially in the dust, I'm not sure. Okay, so then there's Counter-Strike. And this is a first-person shooter like a Halo or a Call of Duty game. But why why Counter-Strike? Why is this the big one? Counter-Strike is, in a lot of ways, almost a a perfectly balanced game in the sense that it it really, you rely so much on, on technical ability in that game where um, and and tactical ability is important too but the technique that the elite players have are are unbelievable because it's so it's so specific to you know having to know what kind of weapon you have and and the ability of the weapon and how to control that weapon and and where you have to be on the map in relation to everyone else and and there's economy between rounds that's so important so counter-strike is i've heard of that a lot of times referred to as like as like real-time chess in a way that really game knowledge and, and technical ability is so, so important in that game. The knock against Counter-Strike, though, is, is the little bit of the content. Obviously, it's because it's you're playing terrorists against counter-terrorists who are, you know, the terrorists are trying to set a bomb and the counter-terrorists are trying to defuse the bomb. So, you know, collegiately, which I come from, there's there's some sensitivity around it. I think that's still part of the old old school stereotype of video games are violent and kids will will go out and just kill people but after playing these games which has been scientifically proven time and time again but that that sort of stigma still persists hey ashley here since 1984 there have been at least two dozen studies on whether violent video games cause real world violence the website kotaku has a really handy article that summarizes their findings which you can find in the show notes but suffice it to say the evidence is mixed Some studies say violent video games lead to more aggression. Others say they have a calming effect because they help people blow off steam. And many on both sides suffer from publication biases. The things that make people commit violence are also incredibly complex, and you probably can't just explain them with a single variable like violent video games. So, you know, I think Counter-Strike's an unbelievable game to watch. It's probably one of the, it's probably one of the most popular games there. You know, it it was on TBS through the E-League, and it's coming into season three. 
of, of Counter-Strike professionally played on, on linear TV. So I feel like the stigma of first-person shooters is slowly but surely kind of waning. It'll, it'll take some more time, though, I think. So the big differences between that and like a Call of Duty or Halo is those are more tactical. You need to know the maps. You need to kind of know the right positions. Counter-Strike is more, I have to point my gun in a very precise way to hit these things. Yeah, it's, well, I don't want to diminish the tactics involved in Counter-Strike because it's super important. Um, but I feel like Counter-Strike is the most technical game, that probably eSport that there is, of, of just ability of mouse and keyboard and and timings and and precision. I think it's the most precise kind of game there is. In fact, I think Counter-Strike players look down on Call of Duty players, think they're kind of casuals, you know, because a a console, you don't have that same precision as you do with like a mouse and a keyboard. Sure, that makes sense. And you talk about precision. So I follow esports to to a degree. And I know that in, in South Korea, when they're playing StarCraft, they actually measure their activity by actions per minute. And there are Korean players who can perform more than 300 actions per minute. And an action being defined as something, they're, a command they're giving their forces or clicking around. That's 300 in a minute. Is that kind of speed necessary for League of Legends or Dota or for Counter-Strike? Or is it more about precision and control over the mouse and all those things? I think it it almost varies in some ways per esport. I think for League of Legends, it's a matter of it's. I think that that precision is important, especially for skill shots and such, and 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 you know landing ultimates. But I feel like in League of Legends, your ability to sort of process an insane amount of information and come to the right conclusion is probably, if I had to define like what is the most special trait of the best players, I think that's the one, because you have to know where you are on the map. And what part of the game is it? And where are the other opponents? And where are your teammates? And what are the objectives? And and should I be farming? Should I be uh, trying to get this objective? So, I mean, to me, that's the most important part of a League of Legends player is being able to come to and, and make the right decision, right? And and make that, that call in-game. Whereas in Counter-Strike, the, all those things, those everything I just mentioned are equally important, but there's such a precision element of technical skill that probably doesn't exist in, in League of Legends of you know getting the right shot of of positioning your 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 rifle the exact spot of where you predict somebody coming around a corner and sometimes even blind shotting and timing you know when you should is is unbelievable the precision that you talk about in the variables remind me of american football lots of players on the field they can be in different places you need to know where you've got a pocket to throw to do you have plays that you practice? Do you have X's and O's on a chalkboard where you're telling the players where to go that they memorize? N- not really. I- I'd say there, there's, there's a couple of cheese routines you can run from the beginning of a game, say of League of Legends, where maybe if you all rush into a lane and try to catch someone out, you know, it's like it's sort of like low risk, high reward if you're able to do something like that. You don't really see it in the pro side because it, you know, it's just everybody's run through every scenario a billion times so they know the exact routines they should be doing so plays really it's so fluid that it's hard to you know in football you you have a stoppage and a restart and in league of legends it's it's the clock's running you know and it's all fluid so there's no real sort of reset time to do this or that now there's there's team calls say okay we're going to split push right now or or let's go get dragon or so there's definitely calls in game where there's I guess that would be sort of like a real-time football call, like soccer or something. You could say, like, hey, we're running this corner kick play. It would be more akin to that. 
And you don't have communication with the players during tournament play, right? No, the coaches don't have. It's only in between rounds, pre and post game. How young are these coaches? Are you hiring guys right out of college? Yeah, in some instances, they're they're right out of college. Our our sort of head, our head coach, uh, his name is Ferris Gansman. He was at he graduated Loyola University three years ago. He's got a full time job, so right after that, he comes over for practices uh, for for our esports program. He's I want to say maybe he's twenty five. But we have also a couple coaches that are, we have a coach from DePaul University, he's in grad school. Uh, we have a coach from UIC who's uh, just finishing up. So they're, you know, it's young. How is that working out? Yeah, you know, there's, there's a couple different ways. When I'm, when I'm looking to hire a coach, I want to know that they have elite game knowledge because they're going to be able to provide value to the, the high-level players we have. And two, since they're so close in age, I want to make sure that they're responsible enough that they can handle discipline and they could handle being on top of and sort of a leader or mentor to a team. Because sometimes it's a challenge for if you're that close in age because you're not there to be their friend. You're there to be their coach and their mentor. So it's, it's a challenge in some ways because they are so close in age. But I have a pretty good eye to, to weed out the ones, I feel like at least, that, that can handle the responsibility. Sure. It sounds, from all the tactics you've talked about, like communication is pretty important for these players. Talk about how that comes into play versus traditional athletics you've coached. Uh, The similarities are that you have to be in contact, communicating with each other all the time. So because there's a fog of war environment, you you have to tell other players what you're seeing and what's happening in the part of the map that you're in so the other players know what's happening. If you're making a call, say, like, a, right, we're, we should do this objective, you need to explain that and the reason why, or, you know, get those sentiments across. The differences are that in soccer, if I'm communicating, I, I, could, I could really let a guy have it. Or if someone said, you know, why'd you do that or whatever, then I could sort of physically run that, that emotion off a little bit or just work harder, like, physically. But in esports, it's such a mental game. I'm not able to like smash my keyboard on the on the on the table because I'm angry. You have to be so mentally strong and focused to be able to channel a negative event into a positive where you're not sort of ruining your team by you know just like releasing energy or emotion negatively. So it, you know I feel like in esports you really have to be mentally disciplined, keep team in mind all the time, and, and keep a positive mindset because. You want the best results out of your team and from yourself. So keeping everything positive and, and pushing towards a team victory, you know, through that positivity is, is important. And it mirrors a lot of sports in that way because precision is more important than brute strength, like golf. Yeah, absolutely. Right, right. Yeah, golfers, that's a good point, right? If you, it's not going to help you chucking your driver into the lake, right? You're just going to have to go get it or, or smashing it. So golf is a good example of how you really have to channel and be be in charge of your emotions and and focus everything to the positive when emotions are running high in a tournament or in a practice is there a physical outlet for athletes playing esports to exert some of that let's say they their character gets killed and they're waiting to respawn do you keep a stress ball next to their keyboard or something or something for them to hit so they're not breaking monitors no, that's part of that mental discipline that comes into play, you know, where there's going to be negative events no matter what, right? And through any competition, there's going to be a negative outcome to some scenario in the game. It's just a matter of how do you channel yourself back to positive or back to at least a neutral 
to help your team. And it's easy to say, but it's hard to do. Yeah, I get I get angry. You know, I, th- I throw controllers when I'm playing a PS4. Sometimes I'm, I'm not proud of it, but no, those are expensive. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> but uh, so that that's really part of being an elite player is being able to have that mental discipline to to overcome. How does that compare globally? Is that, you think, the American perspective, or is that the way the sport's developing everywhere? And, and are we talking more pro or collegiate level? I think it's for all, to be honest. You see it at the elite level and the pro level, right? You don't see guys rage off or, like, chuck a mouse here at all, right? Because it affects team negatively. I think if you look at the, say, South Koreans, who have been historically the most dominant in League of Legends, they're like robots. They're machines. But that's just because they're so disciplined. That's not to say they don't have emotions. They 100% do. But through their training, I feel like they're probably the most elite, and that's why they've had in some ways, obviously not to diminish their ability or their, their technical ability, but I think just through their training, they're the most disciplined mentally uh, teams that are around. Does that translate to high performance globally? Are they kind of the, the bar to beat usually? Yeah, they are the bar to beat. There's no doubt about that. They were probably the first in – uh, when I'm talking, you know, talking about a region like South Korea with StarCraft, you know, years ago they they formed a professional league, and the region as a whole, not just players but also community and fans, embraced esports. They didn't look at it as a waste of time. They didn't see it as negative. They 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 believed as as a competitive sport. So I think that put them in earliest, and they that's why we're seeing them are ahead of the game in in many different titles. One, because it's embraced, and two, because they've had a head start on, on, through the, just the whole development of the professional scene and, and coaching and structure and the best practices where I think the rest of the regions in the world are still kind of catching up and learning on the fly. And you talked about practices. Is there a preseason, and when is the season? Well, for League of Legends, it, it pretty much goes almost year-round. The world, world championships are very end of October, maybe first week of November. Right now we're we're in a summer split, and then it goes into spring, summer, and then it goes into the fall, which leads into like the world championships. You're kind of a pioneer in the world of collegiate esports, right? Talk a little bit about over the last couple decades how esports have evolved and how you found yourself the director of an esports department at a university. Sure, I think you know when you look. At the the history of video games, back to you know, I think probably people of, of my age, the, the Atari twenty six hundred, and some of those first games, Outlaw or even even uh, War, right? That, those were pretty basic games, but I loved them. I I got uh, I was engrossed with them. I played them a lot. I had every console since then, you know, every Nintendo. I've had a I've had a gaming PC as 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 soon as I can convince my my uh, parents to get me one. So. It's just been something I've been super passionate about around around gaming and just sort of the next evolution of of you know different consoles came out. I remember when the first Sega came out, and then even the next the first PlayStation was just sort of a you know a big step forward technology wise. And I guess you could say esports kind of evolved once broadband internet was available because you were able to then play against friends at their house while you're at your house. So you had that connectivity and you were able to not just, you're able to play online rather than just like person to person, which kind of opened up a whole new world of competitive gaming because it was such, it was so accessible then. The very first networked multiplayer game dates all the way back to 1973. It was a simple spacecraft war game called Empire that was written for the Play-Doh computer system. But the golden age of online gaming probably started around the turn of the 2000s. 
When the advent of broadband internet coincided with games like EverQuest, Diablo 2, Counter-Strike, and Halo. So I think that's kind of where video games, uh, along with the technology of the systems and also the accessibility and the uh, connectivity has really sort of elevated um, video games and esports to where we see it now. So with the advent of online connectivity, it, it wasn't oh, I'm better than all my friends in my living room, it became, oh, there are ladder systems and ranking systems, and now I'm better than everyone in North America or in right. Korea. Do you know when was the breaking point when money started to get involved in this? Because it, it feels like in order to become more of a, there to be a professional scene, we're not talking, you know, collegiate athletics is a little different. But in terms of the professional, how old are we talking about? Were there big tournaments in the mid-90s, late-90s? There, there were there were tournaments, and there were actually even in 2006, I think MLG had uh, a series of uh, competitive play on the USA Network. But it, you know, it wasn't for the money that we're seeing now, even comparatively. I'd say the first kind of real money that was put into to esports was through probably like the most significant was like through Dota, Dota Two, which they had a compendium, which is actually crowdfunded. So through this game. I would go on and support this big tournament they have every year called the International, which is like the culmination of the Dota 2, which is the game title, uh, uh, finals. And for $20, I could buy sort of like in-game items, but half of that money would go to the prize pool. So a couple of years ago, we saw that prize pool up around, I think it was like our $11 million, and that made massive news. And then the year after, I think last year's was right around 20 to $19 million, and uh, the international is coming up in September, and I, I think the projections will surpass that. Um, but prize money is great, and it, it sort of drives news stories uh, around esports. But to me, that's not sort of the you know, arrival of esports. That's just sort of a, a symptom of it. And and I, you know, even though I don't, I I don't think I've played Dota two once this whole year, but I'll still buy the compendium just to support kind of the international, um, which sounds strange, but. You know, it's just supporting what you're, what you believe in, what you want to sort of back. But you know, the money behind esports is great. I think it's better sort of when it gets funneled into player salary, where you know it can sustain an ecosystem of of a range of teams rather than just like one team winning twenty million. So that's what you consider to be the deciding factor that kind of says, all right, cool, esports are here, they're serious. You would say the player salaries. Yeah, I think player salaries is a good sort of metric to say to almost to determine the health of like an ecosystem, right? And I don't know, you could you could probably say like Major League Baseball is sick because it's too much money in it, right? But but we're seeing in League of Legends the professional side that there's you know they're raising minimum salary limits. Um, Overwatch franchise model is coming out. Overwatch is a game, and there's a professional league being launched. You know they're going to have set limits about uh, of minimum salaries for for players. So. I think those kind of decisions and those kind of backings through publisher and just team organizations create a working ecosystem that is sustainable. Interesting. And you come from an athletics background. You were originally a soccer coach? Correct, correct. Yeah, for 15, over 15 years, associate athletic director at Robin Morris University and, and coached the soccer team. Okay. How do you compare your experience coaching soccer and looking at a team like that and working with those dynamics of the athletes with e-athletes or i guess you would just call them regular athletes in e-sports yeah. are they are they athletes or e-athletes well i i just call them athletes to be honest and i guess it's all about perspective so 
just to kind of go backwards a little bit. So, you know, my background in video games, I, I've loved video games my whole life. I've continued to play them. I play them even with my kids now. I, I probably play more video games than my kids do. It's just something I'm passionate about, something that I like to do in my off time. You know, it's, uh, you know, it's not like I'm, I'm like taking away from family time. It's just rather than watch TV or a movie, I'd rather go play, uh, you know, a video game. And generally, I've been pretty good at video games, too. You know, you, you know, those people that just have that talent. And I've, I've, I've kind of considered myself above average and, it, you know, over across a bunch of different titles. But League of Legends, I was just getting demolished. I, I, like, yeah, I was in awe of the players I was playing with and against that I couldn't, no matter how much time I put into it, I couldn't really get better. I was getting better, but just the skill cap of the players I was against was was amazing. So there was like a light bulb moment then when I said this game, because it's played five versus five on a on a like on on an online map, this game could be a sport at our school. And I knew that there was a small collegiate system already, so I put a proposal together of how I thought it could be a sport and how we could sponsor that sport, similar to how we do other sports at our school, like baseball, basketball, football, and I brought it to our administration. And, you know, the, the initial reaction is always a little bit of rolling of the eyes and, are you serious? This can't be right. But our school, I think, honestly, they, they were able to listen, and they saw the same merits. I think once, once you kind of talk it through, I think they see the same sort of reasons why it makes sense that I did. And we were able to launch the first varsity scholarship program at Robert Morris University in 2014 for League of Legends. This isn't just a flash in the pan. The number of U.S. schools offering esports scholarships has ballooned in just a couple of years, according to the 2017 Collegiate Esports Report from esports publication The Next Level. In 2015, a year after Robert Morris University started the trend, there were three schools with esports scholarship programs. A year later, there were 15. That's five times as many in just one year, and that doesn't even count schools outside of the U.S. How many schools are participating, and are we talking Division One schools? Are we talking Big Ten schools? What's the what does the competitive landscape look like? Yeah, if we if we look at League of Legends, it's, it's sort of the most popular video game there is, and it's probably the most popular video game and in, in played competitively in collegiate as well. This last season, I want to say there were over like 1,200 teams uh, across the U.S. So it's from ranging from yeah Division One schools to two Division Two II, Division Three NAI, all of those schools and and there could be multiple teams that are entered. So all of those teams competed and then they threw a, a, a series of seasons almost right. They had a competitive season broken down into conferences. You would advance out of those sort of subsets into you know a next group and a next group and a next group to find the best uh, in North America. There's also Canadian teams. This is international too, though, right? Aren't these games hugely popular in Southeast Asia and other places? Yeah, absolutely. And now we're seeing in actually a bunch of different regions, uh, collegiate systems form and organize. And in Europe, there's something called the, uh, the EU Master Series. So they take the best League of Legends teams from a variety of different conferences, from, from Spain, from Portugal, from Germany, from England. They find a champion from those countries and advance on to a European championship. And then from there, there's actually now, for the first time, a world championship, the uh, ICC. It's going to be held in, in China. So they're taking the European, North American Korean and Chinese finalists in, and that's happening in September for like a world championship. What's the gender breakdown? Yeah, gender esports has a long way to go still because it's, I'd say, 98% skews male. Are these male leagues or are they all 
co-ed. No, it's it's definitely co-ed, but just for whatever reason, we haven't seen elite players, and even on the professional side, we haven't seen elite player, female players come through on any pro teams. We, um, one, maybe on Renegades, uh, Maria. But uh, we just haven't seen it yet, and I, I'm not sure what that's a condition of. I wonder if it's not a problem bef- like that we're – we're experiencing before college because there is, you know, there has been for anyone who's played online games, you, there's a little toxicity sort of, uh, you know, when anything gets competitive, people like to place blame and, and get upset. And it's an easy outlet, especially with the anonymity of an online game to just let someone have it if you're not happy with their performance or how they did. So if you recognize, I think maybe like an in game name that sort of skews female, or if you're on voice comms and you could tell that it's a female voice. There's sometimes, I'm afraid, there's a, a lowest common denominator of, of an attack you can make, which sometimes can be nasty. So I, I wonder if we're not disincentivizing female players to play at a competitive level because I'm sure they'll just be like, well, I don't need this hassle. I'm going to do something else rather than take the abuse because anyone coming up through the ranks in any game, but League of Legends, as you go through promotions, people get really serious about it. So... I'm not sure what, because I know just coming from traditional sports that female athletes are just as motivated and are just as competitive as males. There's no way you can tell me, well, they just don't like it. That that makes zero sense to me. And I don't have any science to back that up. It's just what I know. So I think over time, maybe I think as collegiate forms, we'll see it form in high schools. And that'll provide, in my opinion, some safe environments for females to be able to beat males in a safe space where you're not getting attacked or, or yelled at. I'll make this prediction here. We'll see female professional players, and they'll probably be some of the best in the world, but it's going to take some time. Female gamers aren't as rare as you'd think. According to 2017 statistics from the Entertainment Software Association, 41% of U.S. gamers are women. But a report published in 2017 by game analytics company Quantic Foundry found that when it comes to the kinds of games that are central to esports, women's slice of the pie gets a lot smaller. Women make up only 10% of MOBA players, 7% of strategy and first-person shooter players, and a measly 4% of people playing tactical shooters. As the company's co-founder Nick Yee pointed out to Kotaku, a lot of these game categories, one, don't have many female protagonists, and two, require playing online with strangers, where, as Kurt said, the lowest common denominator can rear its ugly head. And right now, are there any collegiate or professional outlets that are all female? I believe I saw there's a one school, Stephenson's College. I'm not even sure where it is, but I think it's an all-girls college. There's not many of those around either anymore, but they formed a scholarship Overwatch program uh, that's launching in the fall of 2017, but that, that's the only one I know of. But in our program, we have, I want to say, maybe like three females that are on scholarship. And we're definitely open to it, and, and we, would, we would love more female players in. I think it adds just a great dynamic, and, and it's a safe environment that we create, and we're supportive of it. Just for whatever reason, we haven't seen them come through. Sure, and if they have a good ranking on mm-hmm. the online leaderboards and things, do you look at just that, or do you also look at academic performance or other activities? Probably the first metric, though, is definitely you know what's, what's your rank. That sort of tells the first story. And if it's something that's worth looking into, then, you know, they get on the phone with them. They, they're, they're communicating with them, but yeah, we definitely have to have the academics to get into school and be able to handle school. 
Um, but also then I think we all try to, as much as you can through the recruiting process, really with any sport, is try to make a determination on character because that's, that's really so important, similar to any sport, right? Because you have to be a good teammate first and, and a great player second. We've seen it through history of all traditional sports, right? It doesn't matter how great of players you have. If you're not a good teammate or if you don't have a good team, whatever that Olympic team was, basketball, remember, that had the best NBA players, didn't win gold, didn't even qualify for medals maybe is a good example. So that's the same as it is in uh, traditional sports as it is in esports. You have to have the great – you have to have really skilled players and then have a good team dynamic and chemistry. Sure. It's like Falco in Star Fox. He'd be <laughs> yeah, the best, right. but he's just so cocky. Right. I know. What a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything we didn't cover in terms of the Robert Morris University program or in terms of collegiate e-athletics that you think we should have touched on? Yeah. So in 2014, we started the first, the world's first varsity program where we offer scholarships. Now in the fall of 2017, the last count, we're at 60, 60 schools that are offering uh, formalized program and scholarships. So it's growing rapidly and quickly. And I still get calls, I'd say, every month or every couple of weeks of, of a different program that are that are interested in exploring the space and, and how they can add. So I think it's growing rapidly now. It, uh, University of Utah, a Power 5 conference, uh, just a, a, a couple of months ago announced that they're going to begin a scholarship program. So I feel like once sort of those big schools like University of Utah uh, University of California, Irvine is another one. Division One programs add, then it makes it sort of a safer ad for the next kind of big school to say, well, okay, they're doing it. It's not just Robert Morris. That that makes sense. So in my opinion, we'll see. I think we'll see a lot more schools rapidly add. In five to seven years, I believe that, that all schools, more or less, will have some sort of either formalized or scholarship program. Wow. And what do you say to people who – are skeptical about the athleticism of esports. How can you compare League of Legends to basketball? That comes down to the question of is it a sport? And some people like that category or that characterization is really important. To me, it doesn't matter. I I think it is a sport. I think you split hairs if you say what's more of a sport, American football or or baseball. You know, what would you say is more of a sport or tennis to golf or NASCAR to Formula One, you start to say what is or isn't a sport is a slippery slope, bowling, right? To me, anything that has a mass behind it that is competitive and, and collegiately can provide value to the students through a team sort of setting in a competitive situation, I think adds adds value to what their collegiate experience is because that's the benefit of athletics in colleges, to be honest. Like, not every school is like Alabama. In fact, most schools, our athletics is, is 100%. There's no way we're making any money on our small football team or our basketball team. Those are all value add for the education component. And that's why it makes 100% sense to me to have esports in an organized varsity sort of setting where you're providing value that the students are, through their participation on that team, are having a, a, a richer outcome once they graduate. And, and that's what they're going to have to do in the workforce anyways. They're going to work in a team. They're going to have to take direction from some manager, right, similar to what they're doing as a coach. So um, I think it's just opening doors for a new subset of students to, to sort of be able to experience athletics. That makes a lot of sense. Well, I want to wrap up by doing a quick curiosity challenge. I'm going to challenge you, and you can take a second to think about this. Tell me something I don't know, 
that doesn't have anything to do with esports or college athletics? Let's see. Did you know that I wear a size 12 uh, shoe on my right foot and a 12 and a half in my left foot? <laughs> <laughs> that is the most challenging challenge I have been given. I did not know that. Right. It's a, uh, it's a malaise that's very difficult to shoe shop. So most of the time, I just have to smoosh my toes in. Does that affect your athletic performance? No, I just have smooshed toes most of the time and, like, you know, uh, toenails fall off. That's kind of how it goes. Wow. (laughs) Fair enough. All right, I've got one for you. And you may already know this because it sounds like you're very – well, you are very plugged into esports and and the way video games affect us and everything. So on Curiosity.com, there is an article – Researchers from Queen Mary University in London have actually found that playing strategy games such as StarCraft may boost cognitive performance in several areas. The study gathered 72 participants to play 40 hours of video games over a six to eight week period and half played StarCraft and half played The Sims, which The Sims is not really a game. It's just kind of a just manage your people and economy and those things. Yeah. Well, results showed that the StarCraft players' performance in psychological tests, as well as their speed and accuracy in cognitive flexibility tests, all improved. So do you see increased academic performance from your athletes? I can't say I, I see anything, because once they come to our program, they've been doing it for a long time. So we, you know, we, we, take, we try to get the best players we can get. So I feel like in regards to that sort of that study, they're as smart as they're going to get, I guess, because they've maybe it is an enhancement because they have been playing already esports. But I, th- I feel like the you know the academic component to to our teams is that, and I think one of the knocks we hear sometimes is like, oh well, they're not going to go to class. All they're going to do is play video games. But we maintain their eligibility, make sure that they they are eligible, so they do go to class and they have to maintain a certain GPA to be on their team. So we leverage the passion of their game. For, for them, they don't want to let their teammates down. So they're, they're going to do extra work or they're going to perform extra well in class. So they're able to practice and play. And, and if someone falls underneath that GPA threshold, then we don't let them practice, at least in the organized team. But they can go to their dorm and practice, but they want to be in that environment. They want to be with the teams and their coaches. So I fully believe that that study because there's just so much going on. You really have to be so aware um, to the to the instant and also to the planning and just being able to process so much information that's not just hitting one, I th- you know, well, I'm now a doctor, but it's not just hitting one part of the brain. It's hitting, I would think, planning and, and the emotions. You have to control your emotions within the game. So I, I believe that because it really does take, I'm tired after I play StarCraft, like at a high, not a high level, but like competitively, it's, it's, it's hard because you have to concentrate so much. Yeah, it sounds like you need to incorporate some kind of zen meditation yeah, right, or right. training. One very final question, what gets you curious, and what are you curious about outside of your field? Uh, outside of my field, you know, I, I'm, I'm really curious at, on sort of the performance angles uh, outside of esports and just in traditional sports. And I love watching the Olympics to see the elite of the elite. And I, I love watching sort of just any kind of uh, elite whether it's individual or team component, whether it's the World Cup, to see like what kind of tactics are being used and, and what's the what's the training regimen. So like any kind of performance sort of focused or laser driven drilled down metrics or or procedures. That's what really gets me curious and interested to learn more about. You mentioned the Olympics. When is League of Legends going to be an Olympic sport? I believe it will be. And there's there's I, I think it's not that easy to sort of add uh 
one, you know, it's probably way easier to add just a sport, you know, like, like beach volleyball, which is, I think, just recently added. But when you're involving another company like Riot Games, right, owns League of Legends and Tencent Games owns Riot, that I think gets a little little dicey sometimes. But we are seeing a little bit of headway in in uh, Asia. There's like these, I want to say, I can't remember the exact title of it, but it's like a Pan-Asian Games that are for metal consideration. That's being League of Legends being added to that. So I think there are sort of some IOC steps that, and processes. In my mind, I think... They're probably waiting to see that it's going to have the longevity that they they would like it to have. But I think we will see it in the next probably two iterations of the Olympics. I think we'll see esports. Wow. But before 2030, you think? maybe? Yeah, I think before 2030. When's the Los Angeles Games? That'd be perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you again so much for coming in. I've been talking to Kurt Melcher, the executive director of esports at Robert Robert Morris University. Thanks again for coming in, and thanks for all the info. Thanks for having me. Before I wrap up this week, I've got some trivia for you. This is your chance to earn some extra credit for those of you who have been paying attention to Curiosity.com over the last couple weeks. So here's your question. What is the hottest, spiciest food on Earth? And for a bonus point, where does it rank on the Scoville scale? For context, the flagship red variety of Tabasco sauce measures up to 5,000 units on the Scoville scale. The answer in just a minute. For answers to any questions you had about this podcast, you can refer to the show notes where we've got lots of helpful links to learn more. This includes links to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Stitcher, and everywhere else podcasts are found. If you're already a subscriber and you enjoyed this episode, then please take a second to give us a five-star rating. It only takes a few taps on your device, and I know that every podcast says this, But it's true. It really would help our ability to bring you fresh content every week. If you have suggestions for future episodes or questions or comments about anything we've covered, then please email us at podcast at curiosity.com. I literally read every message, so believe me, someone will read it. Here at Curiosity, we cover a wide variety of topics every day, and that brings us to today's extra credit answer. The hottest food on earth is the Dragon's Breath Chili Pepper, and it comes in at 2.4 million units on this Scoville scale. You're not really supposed to eat it. Researchers developed the Dragon's Breath Pepper because a lot of people are allergic to anesthetic, and this can be applied to the skin because it's so strong it numbs it. The easiest way to learn more about this and lots of other fun stuff every day is to download the Curiosity app for your Android or iOS device. Thanks to Ashley Hamer, editor extraordinaire, for her fast facts this episode, and thanks to you for listening. Extra special thanks and a virtual high five if you've told your friends to check us out. That's all for this week. For the Curiosity Podcast, I'm Cody Goff.